Hello, and welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. This week, I'm pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Cheryl Waldner. Cheryl's a professor from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine, and she holds the NSERC Beef Cattle Research Council Industrial Research Chair in One Health and Production Limiting Diseases. She's one of the most accomplished researchers on beef cattle health in this country, and her accomplishments are almost too numerous to list. Cheryl and her husband Lauren also operate their own cow-calf operation, and so she can talk about the research and the practical application of those findings. Today, we're going to have a conversation about Yoni's disease in cow-calf herds. Let's get started. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to the podcast. It's uh, great to have you here. And before we get into our topic for the day, uh, I just maybe ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about your background and your current position at the university. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm currently a professor and the Beef Cattle Research Council Chair at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, before that, I spent several years in Alberta working in the foothills in primarily in cow-calf practice and uh, consulting. My husband and I also own and operate a cow-calf herd just west of Saskatoon here. Together with my colleagues and students, we are currently working to identify opportunities to improve beef cattle herd health and performance. And most of my research currently focuses on factors that influence the productivity of cow-calf herds in Western Canada. Yes, and I was talking with you before the podcast, we could have you back for multiple episodes for sure. Uh, you've got so much great information to give to producers, and I know you do a lot of extension meetings and things like that on the side as well. Uh, so really glad that I finally found the time where I could get you cornered to, to do an episode, and hopefully I'll maybe get another one out of you somewhere down the line. But today we want to start with a little chat about Yoni's disease and cow-calf herds. Let's start first by just talking about the real basics of the disease. So it's a bacterial disease. Tell us a little bit about what we know about the bacteria that causes it. Well, Yoni's disease is caused by a bacteria called Mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, so most folks just shorten it to MAP or MAP. Because we don't have any effective vaccines or treatment options, MAP infection or Yoni's disease has become a very serious concern for the cattle industry. So what are the clinical symptoms that we see from Yoni's disease? What does it look like? Well, most of the cattle are infected when they're very young. The problem with this disease is they don't show any clinical signs until they're a lot older. Typically, we don't see clinical signs in cows or bulls until they're between three and six years of age. We can see clinical signs as early as two or sometimes even as late as eight years or more. When we do see clinical signs, the primary sign we see in Yoni's disease is watery diarrhea and rapid weight loss. Most affected animals uh, are a little bit contradictory in that they continue to eat and drink and they look okay. But the diarrhea and the weight loss progressively get worse and worse. And finally, um, mo pretty much all of these animals will go on to die or to be euthanized. Right. And, and we should mention that there are other things that can cause weight loss in older cows and, and 
uh, we may have to do some diagnostics to figure it out. But the the symptoms are pretty uh, pretty obvious when we see these sort of bright alert animals uh, losing weight and having this watery watery diarrhea. So how how does it spread from animal to animal? The MAP bacteria that cause Yoni's disease are produced in very very high numbers in the intestines of these infectious cattle and shed into the feces. Calves can be contaminated by an infectious cow during birth. They can also be infected by ingesting bacteria when they're nursing from a dirty udder. And because these bacteria are also transmitted through feces into the environment, infectious cows don't just pose a threat to their own calves, but to all other calves in their management group. And This would be a relatively simple problem if the MAP bacteria were killed by cold or exposure to the elements, but they're very hardy. They survive in the environment for a very long time, even in very, very cold conditions like we see with our Saskatchewan winters. So calves can be infected by grazing or just eating dirt off of contaminated ground or f- f- from drinking out of the you know dirty little puddles that they like to suck water out of or any other water contaminated by feces. And because these calves are most susceptible when they are very young, we need to take a lot of extra care at calving to avoid any exposure to, to cows that might, might be shedding the Yoni's disease bacteria. Calves can also be directly infected from their mother during gestation or through MAP bacteria that's found in colostrum or milk. The other thing that we need to be aware of, although usually it's not that big of a problem, is that occasionally older animals can also be infected by very, very high doses of MAP bacteria. However, most of these infections don't amount to a lot. They typically don't progress to the point of shedding bacteria or clinical disease, but there certainly are some exceptions where older animals do get infected and then do become infectious or do do show clinical signs later. So if I bought a cow, uh, maybe as a heifer, and she eventually developed Yoni's disease at some point, uh, down the road, it's most likely that she was infected wherever she was born, and and not since I bought her. In most cases, that that will be true. The vast majority of research that's been done here has been done in dairy herds, but it's it's pretty convincing. There's there's exceptions where we do they they have shown and have demonstrated that older animal infections can occur. But especially if we're seeing clinical signs in a relatively young cow, it's almost certain that she was infected as a calf. Right. So why is it so difficult to control this disease? What what are the challenges? We don't have any vaccines. We don't have any treatments. What else makes it hard to control? Well, for diseases like Yoni's, where Like you said, we don't have effective vaccines or treatments. Our best options for control really are to find the affected animals and to remove them from the herd before they can spread the infection. Now, this is a real problem with Yoni's disease. Most calves are infected when they're very young, and these calves appear perfectly normal and are almost impossible to identify with any diagnostic test until the infection has progressed to the point where the animals start to shed the bacteria. And this usually isn't until they're between two and three years of age. So shedding can start a little bit earlier in some cattle or as late as five years or more in others. 
But until then, these silent infections make these animals the equivalent of a ticking time bomb in your herd. Once these animals do start shedding the bacteria and spreading the infection to other animals, there's still a challenge to identify. These shedding animals are important, uh, an important source of new infections, but typically still don't show any clinical signs for several more months or even years. So they're spreading the infection in the herd, and unless we test, we're not going to know what they're doing or that they're there. So there are laboratory tests we can use to identify MAP-infected or infectious animals. But as I noted earlier, these tests will miss most, if not all, of the animals that are not shedding the MAP bacteria yet. And they will also miss some of the animals that have started shedding. And before we leave this point, it's probably worth just thinking for a second about why the tests miss so many animals. The animals that are infectious and spreading the disease to other animals in the herd are going to get missed sometimes by these tests for two very different reasons. First, the tests themselves are not perfect, and we can maybe talk about that later. But the infectious animals don't necessarily shed consistently or all the time, and that's an important point sometimes we forget, is that especially early in the infectious process, they can start shedding, stop shedding, start shedding again, and if we don't test them or we happen to test them at a time where they're not shedding or not shedding high numbers, we, we might miss them and they might be shedding again in a couple of months or right. when they get stressed, like at calving time. Right. So, so they're not consistently shedding. So if we just happen to sample them at the wrong time, we might miss them that way too. So you've done some work on the prevalence of yonis in cow-calf herds in Canada uh, how much of it is out there? How many cows are infected and what's the estimates of that? That's a really good question because the tests that we have make it, make it hard to get a really good answer. But we have had an opportunity a couple of times over the years, especially recently here, to take a look and see what is going on first in Western Canada and then uh, in 2001 as part of our work with the Beef Cattle Research Council in Saskatchewan agriculture, we had the opportunity to collect samples from more than 3,100 cows from 159 cow-calf herds right across Canada. And this particular project tested 20 cows per herd. And based on this subset, we found Yoni's disease in at least 6% of these cow-calf herds. And I say at least 6% because of, of some of the uncertainty that's related to the tests. And a little bit over 1% of these animals, between 1% and 2% of these animals, were, were positive. Now, another study that we've got that I think makes a good contrast to this is that the Saskatchewan Stock Growers Association also worked with the province of Saskatchewan to support a Yoni's disease control program. And that program allowed for testing of not just 20 animals per herd, but of most or all of the animals from the participating herds. And it provides us a more in-depth look at infection rates within herds. So for affected cow-calf herds, we do have some data from some of the volu volunteers from that study or from that control program that shared their testing results with us. And for herds with yonis, we saw an average of 6% of cows that were testing positive, but that 
uh, infection rate could vary anywhere between 1 and up to 24% in the study. And those were the tests that were done the very first time when the people realized that there was an issue and got their testing program up and going. So that's where they were starting from at, at the beginning of the program. So given the nature of this disease and, and the challenges of the tests that I've referred to a couple of times here, these numbers are, are likely an underestimate of the full extent of yonis in the Canadian cow-calf industry. So you mentioned that the diagnostic tests have an imperfect ability to find those animals that are infected. So what are the tests that we have available to us and how do they compare when we're trying to find those positive animals in our herds? Well, there are two commonly used options for testing beef cattle for yonis disease, at least within most of the Canadian labs that are used by the industry. The first one is based on submitting a sample of feces from each animal that you're interested in testing to the diagnostic lab. And then the labs typically use a test called PCR to look for the DNA from the yoni's bacteria. And typically what they would do is they would run this test on each individual fecal sample submitted from the herd. Now, this is the most expensive uh, option for testing. To reduce the laboratory costs of a testing program, veterinarians do have the option of asking the lab to take the feces from five animals, pull that together, and just run one PCR test on the five samples. So if the pool test comes up negative, you can assume that all of the animals in the pool were negative and you've saved a lot of testing costs. However, if the pool comes up positive, we have to pay to retest each of the individual samples to try to figure out which cow or cows were positive from the pool. The second option examines a blood sample using an ELISA test. This ELISA test, rather than looking for the organism itself, is actually measuring antibodies in the blood that the cow produces as a response to the yoni's infection. Now, in comparing the two and sort of trying to understand what our, what our options are and which one works better, as I mentioned, the, the fecal PCR test is the most expensive, but it's also the one that's most likely to find the animals that are shedding the yoni's bacteria. However, it's really important to remember that this test is still not perfect. As I noted before, it will miss animals that are not shedding yet, and it will miss some of the animals that are shedding, especially those that are shedding intermittently. Now, when we pool the fecal samples together to reduce the cost of the PCR test, we further increase the chance that we're actually going to miss affected animals. We'll reduce our testing cost, but we also, with that, reduce the sensitivity of the testing program a little bit. Finally, um, the ELISA test. The chances of missing an individual affected animal are highest with the ELISA test. It has the sort of probably the biggest error associated with it. Uh, but the cost per test of the ELISA is also the lowest. And despite its, its limitations, the ELISA test can still be very effective as a surveillance tool to give us an idea of what's going on at a population level. It's reasonably effective for identifying infected herds, 
and has been used quite successfully in some control programs. And as a tool within affected herds, if your goal for testing in a culling program is to actually limit the disease transmission within the herd and just reduce the rate of transmission, it can also be a very effective tool there as well. Now I want to start a control program. I'm worried about Yoni's disease. Maybe I'm a purebred producer. I want to sell uh, breeding stock to other people. Um, What sort of factors would I maybe have to consider before starting a control strategy? This is a really good question, and it does lead into the question of whether a control strategy is, is even appropriate for a particular herd. The first thing to recognize is that Yoni's control is not a short-term commitment. In some rare cases, we get lucky. We find affected animals very shortly after they come into a herd before they've spread infection or spread infection very far. And we can pretty reliably get rid of the problem in a couple of years. I've, I've had a couple of very direct experiences with that. But that's not the most common scenario. In most cases, the infection is spread and the time horizon to reduce and if we're lucky, eradicate this disease from a herd is going to be closer to, you know, seven to 10 years or even more. So that recognition that if if you're getting into this, you're, you're getting into it for the long haul. So how does that affect or how does that relate to the time horizon of you know, what your goals are for your beef operations. So that's, that's kind of the first thing to consider. The second question to consider is what are your goals at, as part of the control program? Um, are you trying to just control infection, uh, control the spread of infection, or are you trying to dramatically reduce or eliminate it? And that's going to be possibly different for different types of herds. And different types of herd management within different types of herds. A commercial cow-calf producer might be satisfied with limiting the number of new infections. Uh, If the herd is pretty extensively managed, uh, we calve on pasture, extensive winter grazing, those types of things, some basic control and some basic control measures are put in place. The disease could spread very slowly with limited or no laboratory testing and culling. But for others, uh, where the risk of transmission is quite a bit higher, for example, uh, for those of us who have to calve in relatively confined areas, a more aggressive control program might need to be considered to prevent relatively rapid spread of the disease through the herd. So First, you know, even within a, a commercial cow-calf producer, what type of management do you got and, and how big a risk are you for this, this disease exploding rapidly? And the higher your risk is, probably the more aggressive you want to at least consider being with control. The other thing from the cow-calf producer's perspective is what is the, the costs of not doing anything? Well, from the perspective of the cow-calf producer, right, we have to think about what's, what's the economic costs here of, of just sort of ignoring this. And the biggest thing is, or the thing everybody thinks of to start with, is the costs associated with uh, 
cow death losses and premature culling. The second thing, however, that maybe we're not always aware of is the impact on weaning weights. And this is really dramatic for cows that have a clinical infection, but it is also a pretty big deal for cows with subclinical infections that have started to shed but aren't necessarily showing clinical signs yet. So you could have more of them in your herd and you might not, uh, might not be aware of them. And calves from those cows, from some of the research studies that have been done, can be as much as 50 to 70 pounds lighter than calves from cows that um, aren't infected with Yoni's disease. So just just something to something to be aware of. Now, for purebred producers, um, the stakes are, are quite a bit different. Uh, reputation is everything in the purebred or seed stock industry. And the goal of most purebred or seed stock producers is probably going to be to attempt to greatly reduce or even eliminate yonis from their herd as quickly as possible. So they're going to be, in many cases, not necessarily in all cases, but in many cases looking at quite an aggressive testing and culling, or at least testing program, to identify those animals that they need to to either manage very differently or to actually cull from their cull from their herds. Now, from an industry perspective, aggressive management of the disease in seed stock producer herds is is pretty important in terms of preventing the spread to the other herds. Uh, the spread of an infected animal to a commercial herd is important and is something we want to prevent. But we we really need to prevent is the spread of infected animals to other seed stock herds and the potential for the disease to fan out into the industry that way. So that's something as an industry that we want to be very aware of and we want to be very supportive of seed stock producers who are implementing Yoni's control programs in their herds. We know this is a problem in the dairy industry too. What would be the difference in a control program in a dairy uh, herd versus a beef cow-calf herd? Yeah, Yoni's disease is a lot more common in the dairy industry than it is in beef herds. Uh, The herd level prevalence is at least two or three times higher than it is in, in, in beef. And it has been around and has been a problem a lot longer. Because of that, there's been a lot more research into options for control. Now, some of the common strategies that the dairy industry talks about and employs include things like ensuring the calving pen that they use is cleaned between cows, removing calves from infected cows immediately after birth. They also talk about uh, making sure that the calf is then fed colostrum from negative cows and they can fairly effectively rear the calves away from animals that are potentially shedding Yoni's disease. Now, while this is possible, um, it's, it's not always easy, but it is possible in some dairies, these recommendations are, are clearly not realistic for our cow-calf herds, right? It's just, there's, there's just no way we can, we can employ that sort of drastic measures to prevent the calf from being infected. Uh, shortly after birth. 
dairy herds also have the relatively low cost option as part of their control programs of using an ELISA test on milk samples for Yoni's disease as part of their routine milk sampling and testing programs that give them a, I guess, a, a cheaper and a and a more regular insight into what is happening with Yoni's disease within their herds. Right. So they got a bunch of advantages that we don't have in the cow-calf industry. So we're a little more reliant on testing and culling. Um, and I know we can't generalize because every herd has different factors and different motivations, but what would be the best strategy for testing and culling if we're going to start implementing that in our cow-calf herd? And that's that's a good question, and it's going to vary for sure between every herd. And there's a number of questions you want to think about before you you hone in on, on a strategy. The first one is... You know, how well testing and culling is going to work is going to vary with the type of test that's used, how often you're willing to test, and whether you're willing to test all of your cows and your bulls. Other factors that you want to consider in, in developing a, a strategy or picking a strategy are how far the infection has likely spread in the herd before the control program has started, and whether there's any other options uh, in terms of spreading the cows out more at calving, uh, reducing the chances of transmission at calving, some of the other things that we can perhaps talk about later that we can do to reduce the risk of disease spread in the herd while we're doing our testing and to enforce and, and, and enhance the effectiveness of our testing and culling program. And then finally, What's the chances that we're going to reintroduce the infection through herd replacements? All of these factors need to be be considered as we're sort of deciding what kind of test and pro culling program we, we might want to employ. Um, the most effective strategy from some of the both combined research in looking at what, what's been reported in other, other literature and then applying our, our own simulation model that we've developed for Western Canada, when we look at all of that stuff together, the most effective strategy to reduce infection over a series of years is pretty consistently the use of individual animal fecal PCR testing on all cows and bulls in the herd at least once per year. Now, obviously, this is also by far the most expensive strategy, but it is the one strategy, even starting off with a reasonable prevalence of yonis, that does have a fairly consistent success rate. Um, it's, it's still not a big success rate, but it does have a pretty consistent success rate with having at least some chance of eliminating uh, the disease from the, the herd once it's well established. Other options that will pretty reliably or should pretty reliably reduce infection to some extent, um, but that have lower testing costs, are individual fecal PCR testing every two years instead of once a year or even less than once a year, or I should say more than once a year. Individual fecal PCR testing once a year, but only testing half of the cows. So that's those two are options where we do or should expect to see some 
very reasonable decreases in prevalence over time. And the other uh, options where we we will see some decreases in prevalence over time, even in herds where we do have some established yonis within the herd, would be pooled fecal PCR testing at least once per year, or ELISA testing more than once per year. So those are some of the options that we would ex actually expect to, to drive the prevalence downward over time. Finally, there's a whole bunch of other permutations and combinations of these tests, who we're testing, how often we're testing, that can work if the goal of the control program is simply to slow the spread of infection. Or, as I referred to earlier, we get in that unique situation where we've managed to find the infection quick enough after it's entered the herd, and it hasn't really had a chance to establish very well. And if that's the case, then sometimes some of the less intensive testing and culling programs will, will make a more substantial difference. The bottom line is that with any testing and culling program, the cows that test positive should be removed as soon as possible and well in advance of calving season to reduce the potential for contamination of the calving ground in nursery pastures and any additional transmission to other animals in the herd. So that's great advice, Cheryl. Uh, what are some of the other things that we probably need to consider doing beyond the testing and culling part of things? Yeah, it's, it's so important that that not just be the only thing we do because the chances that it is going to work is going to completely hinge on how well we are going to miss animals during that process. There's no question about it. So how well that's going to work is going to, going to completely hinge on how good a job we do of herd management to try to reduce the risk of transmission. And the good news with some of this is that some of these are things that we probably already know already or probably even maybe even doing already. Most management options to control calf scours, for example, are also potentially fairly effective at reducing the risk of Yoni's disease transmission. So some of the examples of the recommendations that we commonly hear are calving cows and heifers in separate areas because the cows are more likely to be shedding yonis than the heifers, so we're protecting the heifers' calves by doing that. Avoiding calving in confined areas, but if we do have to calve in a confined area, then trying to keep the environment and the cows as clean as possible with you know lots of bedding and just doing the best job we can of, of keeping, keeping everything clean and tidy in the calving barns and so forth. Moving cow-calf pairs from the calving area to a series of clean nursery pastures as soon as possible after they've mothered up. Um, or the alternative is to move cows that haven't calved yet to a series of clear, clean areas periodically through the calving season. So again, just trying to minimize the number of animals that are to, together at any point in time, get them spread out, get them onto clean ground. And then finally, if you do have shelters, try to limit, the, to set up the shelters so only the calves can access the shelters and that you don't have the cows going in the shelters with the calves and ending up with really dirty shelters that pose a, a real risk to fecal contamination for the calves. The overall goal 
of all of these management practices is just to reduce that potential for the youngest and the most susceptible calves to be exposed to feces from these infected cows. Right. And we had Elizabeth Homerowski on uh, a number of episodes ago. You can go back and listen to her podcast for all the details on on those sort of management strategies for how to reduce that fecal contamination because she did a great job of that. So maybe we're one of these herds that we're lucky. We don't have Yoni's disease yet. And biosecurity is obviously important in keeping that disease out of our herds. Do you have any advice about how we can stay clear of Yoni's through biosecurity practices? There's, there's no guarantee here, but there's some things that we can consider depending on the number of animals that we're planning on bringing into the herd and what, you know, we, we know about the risk of, of where we're bringing the animals in from. So if we're looking at, um, you know, not bringing in animals very often, if we're looking at it bringing in more valuable animals, if we've got some time, uh, we could consider testing incoming animals that are more than two years of age, where they at least have the potential to be shedding with the individual animal fecal PCR. Now, are we going to do that all the time? Probably not. But it is, if you're in a situation where you want to be extremely careful, it is an option you could consider. Testing could reduce the risk of bringing in the disease, but it's not going to eliminate it for all of the, the limitations we talked about testing individual animals. No, no test is going to be perfect for ensuring in, incoming individual animals are safe. We definitely don't want to forget the threat of Yoni's disease when we're buying in bulls. And the problem with buying bulls is we're testing, testing bulls that are less than two years of age, which is typically where most of us buy our bulls, has a very low chance of identifying affected animals because most of the animals, even if they are infected, are not actually going to be infectious or shedding at this point in time. So these guys are going to cause us a bit of a problem. The only way we can get around this is to try to learn as much as we can about the yoni status of the herd of origin. Uh, that can provide us a lot of useful information, either in addition to individual animal testing or in place of it where it's just, just not feasible, which is the case most of the time. So, for example, you can simply ask whether there has been any clinical cases of Yoni's disease in the last three years. And yes, that can be a bit of an uncomfortable conversation, but considering the, the risks of missing that uh, and bringing Yonis into your herd, it's probably an important one. You can also ask whether or not there's been any testing done in the herd. When an individual animal is tested, the results are, there's, there's a lot of limitations to the results. But when we've got herd level testing or even testing of a subset of herd that's been repeated over a period of years, and somebody can come to you and say, look, you know, we're, we're doing routine testing and I can tell you that we, you know, we haven't had any positives in, you know, X years and further that we haven't had any clinical cases in the last, you know, f three, five, 10 years, you can be pretty assured that your risk of buying in Yoni's disease into your herd is going to be pretty low. That's probably the best information that we're going to get in most cases is that combination of 
no history of clinical yonis. And then in some cases, if the herd has happened to participate in a control program or is in a testing program where they can tell you that they've got some herd level test negative results, that's that's pretty pretty convincing information. It's not going to be perfect again, but it's it's the best assurance that we're going to get. And then the final thing I've just got to add for completeness, it doesn't happen as often as it used to, but in terms of keeping yonis out of our herd in the first place, don't buy or borrow colostrum from outside herds. Um, given the, especially from dairy herds, given their higher risk of yonis disease. And that's just a very, a very easy way to accidentally have yonis come in the back door and have it surprise us in, you know, two or three years down the road. Right. And we had uh, Dr. Windeer on the podcast a couple episodes ago saying the same thing too. So you can go and uh, listen to her, give that same advice as well. Uh, maybe just before we go, can you tell us a little bit about your yonis testing tool that producers can access online? So, one of the challenges with making decisions about how to me- best manage Yoni's disease is the just tremendous amount of uncertainty. We've got questions about how many animals in our herd are actually infected at the start of the control program. We're not necessarily going to have a very good idea of where we're starting from. Uh, we don't know when infected animals might actually start to shed. We don't know how well the tests actually are going to work in our herd. There's, there's a lot of question marks. So what we did is we designed a simulation tool that will help us pull together the most important information about Yoni's disease and what we know about test performance and then put that together and try to project what might happen with various testing, culling, and replacement options. The tool isn't a crystal ball, and it's not going to tell you exactly what is right for your herd. But what it does do is give gives you an option to explore different control scenarios in a model that you can customize for your herd. The tool will estimate the relative effects of different strategies and some of the uncertainty to expect in those outcomes given the size of your herd, your replacement strategy, and how many infected cows you think you might have. Most importantly, it helps us visualize the silent infections that could be hiding in the herd and how those ticking time bombs can impact the amount of effort and number of years that it might take for us to control this infection. So this simulation tool and instructions for use can be found at the Beef Cattle Research Council's website, www.beefresearch.ca. Great. I'll add the link to that in the show notes so that if someone's interested in looking in that and and working with it, uh, they can access it. I think that's all the time we have for today. So thanks, Cheryl. I really appreciate your time in doing this, and I hope I can get you again sometime in the future. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast, and thanks again to my guest, Dr. Cheryl Waldner from the Western College of Veterinary Medicine, at the University of Saskatchewan. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. We always appreciate feedback, so if you have any questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email us at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care until next time.